0: You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Well, good morning to all of you. By design, we're doing things a little differently this morning, and we're going to dive into God's Word now, because we're going to be following this with, by design, a very long time of worship, um, music worship, response worship, so... Um, we have that to look forward to as we continue on here, and if you were with us last week, we started to do some business with the reality that fear makes us do crazy things, like throwing rocks at police cars <laughs> Now before we go a little further here, I kept count last week, and between our morning services, as I told that story, and for those of you who are saying to yourselves what 's that about, go back and listen to last week 's sermon but I had over a dozen of you come up to me and have a little confession with me and say, yeah, I threw rocks at cars too. Okay, so it's not just me. However, all of you, to a person went out of your way who came to talk to me about that, who owned that you threw rocks at cars, all of you went out of your way to say, yeah, but I never threw rocks at police cars. That's on you. Okay, okay, I own that. But fear makes us do crazy things. Like... With Abram's example, lying about your wife and saying she's your sister. Because if you'll remember with me, a famine hits the land, and it's very severe, it's very significant. And so without consulting God, Abram goes down to Egypt. And in the process, makes some incredibly broken choices with significant consequences. And yet God protects him from at least some of that, preserves really the promises that he had made to Abram. And Abram, humiliated, shamed, exposed as a liar, literally gets run out of town, run out of Egypt, goes back to the promised land. And what we're about to see today is the reality of how God has now used that in his life. Because I would submit to you that Abram went back to the promised land a changed man. He is repenting. He is turning back to God to listen to God, to seek God, and to follow God, and to live his life on God's terms. And last week, we looked at the reality of the challenges of faith. But this week, now we're going to look at the blessings of faith. I'm sure a number of you have heard sermons about, you know, like what we did last week challenges of faith and struggles with faith but how often do we really step back and take a moment to realize to reflect on to own the reality that there is blessing from trusting and obeying God there are blessings that come with faith and we're going to see this lived out now in the life of Abram. So if you have a Bible, grab your tablet or your phone, turn it on, go to Genesis 13. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week and we're going to do two chapters today, Genesis 13 and Genesis 14. And as I read Genesis 13 to you now, I'd like you to watch for how is Abram a changed man? What are some of these blessings that come with faith that he's now going to experience? Let's look at this together. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife, not his sister, his wife, and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And as we saw from last week, God blessed Abram despite the brokenness of his choices. That was some of God's grace in Abram's life. So from the Nagab, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like Egypt. But this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. All the land you see I will give to you, and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk the length and breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So let's begin to work our way back through this passage. It tells us, once again, it reminds us that Abram had become very wealthy when he had gone to Egypt. God had blessed him despite his brokenness, despite his poor choice to go there without consulting the Lord first. First, and we see this irony that comes from wealth. It's interesting that Abram and Lot are now so wealthy that there's not enough land to support their livestock, and that's a problem. What we don't know is whether the famine was still going on at this point or not. It doesn't matter. What we are told that matters is they don't have enough land for all their livestock, Be careful what you ask for because you might might just get it, right? Thirteen years ago, when my family and I first moved to Gresham and and relocated here to Grace, um, the housing market was very similar to the housing market we've had these last several years. Um, Not a lot of inventory. uh, Houses were going fast. There were bidding wars on houses. And we were so grateful to, to find this one home that we thought would work for our family. It needed a lot of work, and we'd have to do a lot of work to it. But we were very grateful to get it. And this home came with an above-ground swimming pool. We weren't looking for that. It just came with it. So the way things were supposed to work was I came over to Gresham the day we were to move, and we're getting things ready on the home front, and Jamie and the kids, my little kids, our little kids, were, were busily trying to finish the final cleaning of the house and do the final work there, and the plan was they would come over here. We'd stay in a hotel that first night. And this was a Saturday night, so the very next morning I was preaching my first sermon here at Grace. And so all this worked out the way it did, and unfortunately the hotel fell through, and I won't go into the reasons for that. So my wife and kids, exhausted after cleaning our our last home, came to Gresham, got into town about 11.30, midnight, and on their way here was when we found out that the hotel wasn't going to work, so I called my wife and said, we're having an adventure. We are going to throw our sleeping bags down on the floor of our empty house, and we're going to sleep on the floor. And this is how we sold this to our little kids. We're having an adventure. We get to camp in our new house on the floor. Isn't this great? And so we did. So we went to bed about, I think it was about 1 in the morning. I was to get up in about five hours to start getting ready to to come to Grace. And we had this 90-pound Bernese Mountain Dog named Zoe. Now those dogs are bred to love the snow. Our dog never got that memo. And she loved water of any kind. We could not keep her out of it. A pond, a ditch, a septic tank, I'm just kidding. But if there was liquid, she was in it. So we put her outside to do her business that morning as I got up, and she doesn't come back. And we're thinking to ourselves, why? it's a fenced yard. Where did the dog go? So I go outside and go around the corner to where this above ground pool is that is now mine. And here's the dog happily swimming around the pool. (laughs) She went through the cover and then couldn't get out. So I picked her up out of the pool and got her out soaking wet. I had one change of clothes. Everything else was packed. And it was the very change of clothes I was going to preach my first sermon in on my first Sunday morning here at Grace. And so that morning, for those of you who remember, 13 years ago, I came here a little damp and preached my first sermon in wet clothes. (laughs) Be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. All of us would love on some level to be rich. Who wouldn't? But in most cases, compared to the rest of the world, we are rich. In fact, the reality is, if you make more than $40,000 a year, if you have more than $40,000 a year of resources that comes into your household, you are in the richest 10% of the world. So think about what you have. Your clothes, your car or cars. Your, your stuff, we could just continue to go, on the, go down the list, couldn't we? And isn't there an irony that comes with that? That when you get stuff, when you get wealth, when you have things, it's a lot of work. You've got to store it. How many of us have storage beyond the storage we have in our homes or our apartments? We have storage containers. We have storage space. And then you have to keep up with stuff, and you have to maintenance stuff, and you have to take care of it. Having a pool is epic in Oregon, two months of the year. And the other 10 months, I am maintaining it and taking care of it and questioning the wisdom of the person who lived before me to put it in and then give it to me. But that's the reality of stuff and wealth. And we see that irony playing out here with Abram and Lot. They have all this livestock. They have all this wealth. And now they've got a problem. The land won't support all of them. And that's not their only problem. It goes on to tell us that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were still living in the land, meaning several things. Number one, Abram and Lot are two very little fish in a very big pond. They are surrounded by hostile peoples who far outnumber them. And these nations are still in the land, which means everyone's competing for the same resources. And therefore, Lot and Abram need to have an alliance together, need to look out for each other, need to take care of one another because it's them against everybody else and there's not enough land to go around. And if that wasn't it, there's another problem and that is, so what are they going to do? And what happens here in this exchange is astounding for a number of reasons. Number one, in a patriarchal culture, It was unthinkable that the senior leader of the clan, Abram, the older man in a culture that valued age, Abram, the one who was the uncle to the nephew, Abram, would give up his right to choose where he was going to go and what land he was going to have and in turn would defer to his younger nephew to make the choice. So what was on the table here? Well there's three choices really reasonably that Abram can make. Number 1. He can choose to go with Lot. He can choose to continue to have good relationship with Lot, but now he will strain once again his relationship with God and he will leave the promised land once again. How well did that just work out for him to leave the promised land? Not real well. I personally think he's been there and done that. And he's learned his lesson. He is not going to challenge and question the promise of God once again in that way. He's not going to leave the land again. Option number two. He asserts his right to make the choice and he makes the call himself. And if he chooses what's best for himself then what does that do with his relationship with his nephew? Well, even though it's his right to do that, it fractures relationship with Lot. But then once again, he's going to leave the promised land and he calls into question the promise of God and he'll strain his relationship with God as a result. So he chooses not to exercise his rights. So he comes to the third option and that third option is to let Lot choose. And so Lot chooses what's best for him. Abram retains relationship with his nephew. In fact, he honors his nephew. He retains relationship with God because he's choosing to stay in the promised land. And I, we don't know, but I personally believe that if Lot would have chosen to stay in the land with Abram, I don't think Abram would have left it. I think they would have figured something else out. But we don't know that for sure, but this is what we do know. Lot chooses what's best for him. And this is the contrast that continues to be set up between Lot and Abram. And I'm not quite sure how all these details work because we know if we jump forward in the New Testament to Second Peter, it declares that Lot was a righteous man. But all of his actions to this point are not righteous. In fact, they're quite self-serving and selfish, Really? Lot is present throughout all these stories, but he's passive. You never see him seeking the Lord. In fact, there are some scholars who question whether Abram should have ever brought him from Ur with him in the first place. But again, that's something we we don't know, but this is what we do know, that Lot is going to do what's best for Lot. And the way this land is described to us, which we'll get to here in just a minute, is this is the opportunity of a lifetime. This is the opportunity for Lot to have his big break. This is amazing land in a land where there has been a famine, and we still don't know if the famine's still going on, but this clearly is the very best land. This is financial opportunity beyond what Lot has ever dreamed, and it's his to have. And so he chooses what's best for himself. And again, as the text tells us what we need to know, what's missing here? There's no indication that Lot has sought the Lord whatsoever in this decision. He's doing what he wants to do. Versus Abram with how this passage starts once again, seeking the Lord, inquiring of the Lord. It's very, very interesting. So let's think about this. Let's say a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make more money than you've ever made in your entire life. The career break you've always hoped for comes your way, but it comes with a cost. And here's the cost. If you choose to take that opportunity, if you choose to cash in on that, it means it's going to strain or even fracture relationship with your family, and it's going to strain relationship with your God. Would you do it? What would you do? As a pastor, one of the rich blessings of being able to do what I get to do day in and day out is I get to be with people in all the experiences and rhythms of life. I get to pe- be with people in times of blessing. I also get to be with people in times of difficulty and crisis. And over the years, I've seen this very question that Abram is presented with and Lot is presented with and that we will be presented with at some point play itself out in a number of ways. By way of example, I have seen family after family where there's wealth and inheritance in the family and the owner of that passes away and then it comes down to the kids and grandkids. And I've seen the very best of families, the most godly family, the most mature families sacrifice relationship with one another and relationship with God for money. And I've seen that happen over and over again. I've also seen godly families where the very deliberate choice is made that we are not gonna fight over money and I've seen members of families walk away from the opportunity to cash in on an inheritance, to get what is rightfully theirs, and to choose to let that go in order to retain relationship with other family and to have right relationship with God. You see how this goes. I've seen you live this out in a number of ways as a church family. There are a number of you who have passed by a promotion passed over an opportunity which you had always wanted, which finally came your way, but you've passed on it because it meant time away from your family in a way that you weren't willing to compromise on. Or you've passed up on jobs that would come between you and being able to worship on a Sunday morning or to be able to be meaningfully engaged in community with your church family in some way, shape, or form. And again, understand I'm not saying some of you will be put in opportunities, and this does happen, situations, I guess, where you take a job that unfortunately means you can't worship on Sunday. I'm, not, I'm just trying to point out that there will come those times when you're going to be faced with a challenge and a choice between right relationship with God, right relationship with other people, and money or stuff. And that is what's going on here. And this isn't just any opportunity. Because as this text is describing what Lot is seeing, it's also giving us a commentary, a peek inside his heart. What's motivating him? What is he looking for? It says that when he looked at this land, this land that was outside the promised land on the other side of the Jordan, that it looked like a garden of the Lord. Well, folks, that's language that's reaching all the way back into the very beginning of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Could it be that this is more than just opportunity to get even more rich for Lot? Because the language here is the same language that takes us back to the garden when Eve looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she saw it and she took it instead of hearing God and trusting God and following God. And I think... I personally think this is the same pattern that we're seeing here in this passage. Adam sees it and he takes it without consulting God, without hearing from God, and without following God because this is what he's always been looking for. This is more than just money. There is blessing here. There is security here that he is now convincing himself he isn't gonna find any place else. This is what he's always been looking for. I think that this is Lot saying, this is what I need. This is what's going to complete me. Versus Abram, who is giving up his right to have access to the same land because he's choosing to trust in the promises of God and stay in the promised land. How can Abram do that? How can he pass on the financial opportunity of a lifetime? Because his faith is giving him perspective. He knows there's a bigger picture here. He has a God who has promised to bless him if he'll stay in the land that this God is going to give him. But for Lot, in contrast, business is business, Uncle Abe. Sorry, pal. I'm going to get what's best for me. And could it be that he's looking for something that he's never going to find there or anywhere except in his relationship with God? And that's a security. That's a foundation that is unshakable. Fears, failures, tests, trials, they may challenge that security, but they will never take it away. If your security is rooted in a foundation of the character and the promises of God, nothing can take that away from you if you don't let it. How can Abram pass on this incredible opportunity? He's got perspective from his faith and his security is in what he has from God. But there's even more detail we're given here. So what direction is this land? This wonderful, incredible land that's like the Garden of Eden that's outside the Promised Land? What direction is it? It's east. There is a pattern that is beginning to establish itself in the book of Genesis. When God's people go east, things go south. In a hurry. Think with me for a minute. When Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, they go east. When Cain is rightfully punished by God for murdering his brother Abel, which direction does Cain go to wander? Where does the wanderer go to the land of wandering? It is to the east. When the people decide we're going to make a name for ourselves apart from God, We're going to build this incredible tower in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. What direction do they go to do that? East. When God's people go east, things go south. And what direction is this? It is east. But I think there's even more here. Could it be that that Lot is saying, I want the garden. I just don't want the God that comes with it. Or to put it another way, I want the benefits and the blessings without the trust and obedience. You ever say that to yourself? You ever act like that with the choices that you make? Oh God, I want your blessings, but on my terms, not yours. And this is how you can begin to put your finger on this in the language of your heart. God wants me happy. How often do we hear that? Or, God is a God of love. It's okay if I choose this or do that. If that language begins to roll off your tongue or mine, there's a good chance that we're a lot like Lot. So how do things work out for Lot with this choice that he's about to make? There's some foreshadowing going on here that will set us up for the next chapter. It says that he pitches his tents near Sodom. And what were the people of Sodom like? They were wicked and sinned greatly against the Lord. That is extremely powerful Old Testament language to say these are not nice people. These are profoundly broken people. And in several weeks, when we get to that chapter, you will see what these people were like. But now as we begin to go into chapter 14 in just a minute, Lot is not just going to land near Sodom. He is eventually going to move into it. Because could it be that the reality is playing itself out, that sin always grows, that it never stays the same? We convince ourselves it does. That's just one bad choice, or it's just one little compromise. Or... But the reality of sin is that it never stays the same and it's never just about me and you. It has consequences for those around us and it always grows. I had a pastor who would say this and I thought, boy, this is so profound. He would say this, sin takes you further than you ever intended to go, keeps you longer than you ever intended to stay and will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. Lot's actions are about to have significant consequences for him and Abram and his family. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But here's Abram his nephew chooses this incredible land. And Abram was left with the leftovers, right? God shows up once again. And what does he say? Look to the north. Look to the east, look to the west, look to the south. Do you see that? It's all yours. Abram, you don't get the leftovers, you get everything. Because you have been faithful, because you have trusted, because you have obeyed. My friends, we see this over and over again in God's word God blesses obedience, God blesses trust by providing. Because Abram stays in the land, he will now get the blessing of the promises that God wants to give him. But here's the irony, and we often overlook this. Abram's never gonna get to see it. Not fully. These promises of all this land will be yours. There will be so many descendants that you'll have that it'll be a great nation. It'll be like sand on a seashore. It'll be like dust. You just you can't count it all. He will never get to see those come to fruition. If we fast forward to the book of Hebrews, to the hall of fame of faith, where the writer is singling out these men and women of God in the Bible who had incredible faith, Abram is at the top of the list, and it says this, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Let's skip down here where it says this, And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, Cave descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had the opportunity to return. But instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And the same is true for us. Yes, God promises to provide for us, but there are layers to this. Even as we see these incredible promises played out in the life of Abraham, he never gets to fully experience them. And what you and I need to be careful about what we do, and this could be a whole other sermon or even sermons, is what we put God on the hook for. Yes, God promises to protect and provide for us if we will trust and obey him, absolutely. But there's some things that we may not get to see in this life. We may not see that prodigal child or grandchild come back to the Lord. We may not be rescued from that addiction that we go toe-to-toe with every day. Our health may never return to what we were hoping it would. But this is what we do know. God promises to provide what we need to do his will, to live life on his terms. And he stands behind that. Doesn't mean we always get what we want, when we want it, how we want it but it does mean God is faithful. And now we're gonna see this play out as we get into chapter 14. So Lot is gonna go live near Sodom and now he's gonna live in it. And as all this is going on, there's another story that's spooling up. There's this group of kings that have been subjugating that region and conquering all the other regions around it. And now they come to this part of the Palestine, this part of Canaan. And the kings who were there in the land are gonna ally together and it's gonna be four kings against five and the four kings are gonna thump those five and they're gonna lose and one of those kings is the king of Sodom and they will sweep in and they will take everybody in Sodom and begin to take them back to their land. And Abram hears about this. His nephew is now in big trouble. He's been captured. And so Abram will gather 318 men which sounds like a lot of men, but it's not. Not when you consider he's going up against an army of four kings and he will pursue those four kings and their armies through the night, he will attack that night and God will do this incredible miracle and he will deliver lot and everyone who's been taking and all the stuff that's been taken into Abram's hands. He'll give him this incredible victory and this is where we now pick up this passage He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kerdelamur, who's the chief king among those kings, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Who in the world is this guy? He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Now, there is so much that's going on in this passage. There are several sermons lurking in what we just read, so we're going to do a flyby of this. But here comes Abram. God has protected him. First, protecting him by Abram staying in the promised land, And God, doing what he said he was going to do if Abram stayed there. So when these kings swept down into the region, Abram was miraculously protected. He didn't get captured. And then when Abram puts his life on the line because of Lot's choices to go live where he chose to live and among the people he chose to live among, Abram goes and rescues him and God protects him again and gives this miraculous victory. And now these two kings come out to meet Abram as he's coming back into the land. And by the way, the king of Salem can also be translated the king of Jerusalem. Salem means Jerusalem, same, same place. And so this king of Salem comes out to give, but the king of Sodom comes out really to take from Abram. One gives Abram reward, the other promises riches. Whoa, 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 wait a minute here. We've seen this movie before. This is an opportunity of a lifetime, once again, for Abram. Because now he's captured all this wealth, all these people. Now he has even more stuff than he started with. And it can be his. If he'll enter into a relationship, a treaty, with the king of Sodom, which is functionally what that meant. If Abram accepted all the stuff, from Sodom that he had rightfully rescued from those other kings, if he accepted that, he was now compromising on his loyalty to God because now in that culture he was indebted to the king of Sodom. So the king of Sodom could call upon him at any point to do his bidding. And what this really represented was a compromise of Abram's loyalty. Would he stay true to God or would he cash in on the opportunity of a lifetime and get all this stuff but then indebt himself to the king of Sodom and then comes along the king of Salem who is this guy Melchizedek where'd he come from who are his parents what's his lineage and then he will vanish from scripture after this he will be referenced in Psalm 110 where he will be connected to David and the promises of David But it will look even beyond that to the promised one, to the Messiah, to the chosen one who will come. And then if we fast forward into the New Testament and we come to Hebrews chapter um, seven through nine, excuse me, five through seven, now it begins to be explained to us and the writer of Hebrews connects the dots for us that Melchizedek is really representative of Jesus. Which is why Abram Gives 10% of all of his stuff to Melchizedek. Because you gave 10% of what you had to a king. And this king/slash priest, and you rarely saw those two in the same person, but this king priest, this kingly priest, worships the same God Abram does. And the name used for God here is not Yahweh, it's El Elyon, which means. The God Most High. And so Melchizedek brings out food and wine, and it's a celebration. He blesses Abram, and then Abram in turn blesses him. And we don't have time to unpack all this, but the bottom line is Melchizedek points to Jesus. Jesus represents us to God, he is our priest. He represents God to us, and he is the sacrifice, all in one. The bottom line is, Jesus is our reward. He is the source of true riches, and this God wants to reward your trust and obedience. Do you see what's up on the screens? Do you see what's in your notes? What are the rewards of faith? Man, a God who will give you perspective. A God who will give you security. A God who will provide for you. A God who does protect you. At times, despite the brokenness of your choices and mine. And that's just some of the reward that he gives us. But what does he promise us? Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. And what? that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This God wants to reward you for your trust and obedience. And that's what we're gonna celebrate here this morning. Just like Abram declared his loyalty, his love, his worship to God by giving some of his goods, some of what he had as a sacrifice to this priest, we're now gonna give ourselves to this God as we worship him together. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come. When you came in, you should have received one of these cards. On one side, it deliberately takes us back to where we left off last week, where we looked at the challenges that come our way with faith. Some of you are in a famine right now. You're in a crisis. And you're having a hard time believing the promises of God. Some of you are going toe-to-toe with your fears, Some of them your worst fears. And some of you, quite honestly, are looking to escape from that in ways that you know are not what God wants for you. But it sure looks tempting. And some of you are in a place this morning because of what's going on in your life, you're having a hard time seeing the grace of God. Where is God? What has he done? What is he doing? And then we go to the other side. That this is a God who gives perspective Because he is who he says he is. He does what he says he will do. He keeps his word. He keeps his promises. And therefore, he is the source of our security. Not our stuff. Not even the status of our relationships. Or if we have a spouse, our spouse. But our security ultimately is found in Jesus. Because he is the only one who will complete you. And as a result, he protects us. He provides for us. He rewards us. So... I am pleased to tell you this is your time. By design, this is an extended time of music, worship, and response. We have communion off to the sides. As the Spirit prompts you, go take communion. Remind yourself of what you have in this God. With that card, you can write on that and bring it as an offering and just drop it on those tables. If you didn't get one, we have extra cards on those tables for you to grab. Or you can choose, like I'm gonna do, to not write on this now, but to take it with me. And I'm gonna use this throughout the week to remind myself of the blessings of God. You can sing, you can pray, you can meditate, you can dance, however you wanna worship. This is your time, so let's do it. Jesus, thank you that you are faithful, that you are the God who stands behind your promises, that you do what you say you will do, and that you can be trusted. Even when it feels like you can't be trusted, you can. Because you are who you say you are. You do what you say you will do. And therefore, we choose to believe. And we look for, we long for the rewards that you promise us in doing that. So would we worship you in spirit and truth now? And in Jesus' name, amen. I hope that's true. I hope that you mean what you just sang. Because for you and me, if we trust and obey this amazing God, He will bless us. He will reward us. He promises that. He wants to do that for me and you. That's not the question. The question is, will we believe it? And then will we live it? In this next chapter we'll dive into where Pastor Matt will take us next week. It starts this way. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. He is your reward and mine. And he wants to bless your life. So let's go from here believing that and living like that. And let me pray that over you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for each person who is here. And thank you for those who will be listening to this podcast. That God, you would continue to reach into our hearts and help us to believe Help us to trust you. Help us to obey you. When things come our way that will come our way, that tempt us to compromise on our loyalty to you, that challenge what we believe, that call into question your promises, we will choose to trust and obey you, to anchor ourselves to the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, I pray your blessing over each person here, each person listening that we would walk in the power of your spirit now, and we would have opportunity to tell others about this amazing God, who he is, what he's done, what he's going to do, and thank you for your faithfulness to us. You are our great reward, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. So go and live for him, and we hope to see you back next week.